0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of the Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 98. It's titled, Why You Need to Start a Lifestyle Business. About 18 months ago, Alex Bloomberg, a former public radio producer for This American Life and Planet Money, launched a podcast company called Gimlet Media. At the same time, he launched a podcast named Startup, where he documented the ups and downs of entrepreneurial life. One of Bloomberg's investors in his new company is venture capitalist Chris Saka, who was also an early investor in Twitter and Uber. In the finale of season one of Startup, it's episode 14, Alex shares the audio conversation he and Chris Saka had about Bloomberg's progress as an entrepreneur. Bloomberg's feeling pretty good about his company. Gimlet Media has booked over a million dollars in advertising revenue. It has 12 employees, an office in Brooklyn, and the company recently turned profitable. Saka is not pleased with this profitability part. Here's his quote. Getting cash flow positive is usually a bad move for an early stage company. Everyone I know that is cash flow positive that early stops growing at the rate they should be growing and gets anchored by the idea they should keep making money. They no longer feel the freedom to take chances and spend the money they need to be be the size they need to be. Saka goes on. You're not trying to build a little profitable lifestyle business. You're trying to build a huge scale media company, which means you are likely to lose money for a long time. Bloomberg, and and I'm playing this when I listened to this episode, I was on a beach near uh, Laguna Beach, California with LaPril, and I'm and we're we're on the beach. I said, you gotta listen to this conversation because there is a a, a great deal of tension in this conversation not not animosity but you can you can feel the underlying tension so bloomberg responds to saka's comment and he sounds a little defeated and asks well what what is a lifestyle business saka says a lifestyle business is a business that is likely not growing or is growing at a really modest clip. It is making money so people working there are living comfortably. They are drawing reasonable salaries for their time. The pace is reasonable enough that they can actually go on vacation. A lifestyle business looks good to a lot of people, says Bloomberg. Not when you're using my money, replies Saka, You've signed up for the Media Empire Building Conquest. You are Rupert Murdoch. You are going to need a 187-foot yacht before you're satisfied. At that point, LePro had me turn off, turn, turn off the podcast. It was a little too much, too, too much tension. And Bloomberg says that he, well, obviously, Saka didn't want him to, didn't think it was going to be that he was going to need to that he would eventually build a yacht, right? He would. He would. He would Bloomberg is not going to be, and Gimlet Media is not going to be Rupert Murdoch yet. The the message was there that that this is not a little business that that Bloomberg has started because he took outside money. He's taken venture capital money. And Saka's point is venture capitalists don't fund lifestyle businesses. They fund entrepreneurs who are obsessed with accomplishing a goal. At any cost. And that goal is not just to solve a particular need of the marketplace, but to grow an empire. Because given most startup companies fail, venture capitalists need their successful investments to grow into huge enterprises in order to provide the venture capitalists and their limited partners the targeted 15 to 20% internal rate of return for the entire portfolio. That's a portfolio that includes both losers, mostly losers, and a few winners. And I've done some venture capital investing, and I I have helped former clients get into venture capital funds. And and that's really the way it is. Most of the startups they invest in, they they might break even or they lose money, but they don't get big. And so they're really these these venture capitalists, the the winners got to be, they just need to win big because the returns that the, the VC's model is about 20 to 30% gross internal rate of return across an entire portfolio of companies. And if most of the investments aren't getting anywhere near that, that means the winners have to do extremely well. And as a result, it's not enough for Uber, which is one of Saka's investments, to be a successful app that coordinates freelance limousine drivers. To justify its huge valuation and to grow its revenue 200 or 300% per year indefinitely, Uber needs to evolve into a mammoth global automated transportation and delivery service, complete with driverless cars and drones. In the episode, Bloomberg relates how Uber's founder, Travis Kalanick, travels with a half-filled backpack and stays at hostels despite his company's $40 billion valuation. He is a man on a mission, is how Bloomberg describes Kalanick. Bloomberg, on the other hand, said he travels with a full suitcase and toddler seats and carry-ons with sippy cups and board books. He stays in family suites and chain hotels with indoor pools. I want more than a lifestyle business, says Bloomberg, but I do have a lifestyle, or as my wife would call it, a life In a family that I love more than I will ever love my business. The normal path for when you take venture capital investment is to hold an initial public stock offering or an IPO. And that raises capital in order for the venture capitalists and their limited partners to monetize their early investments to cash out. And in order to justify the rich offering price for the IPO, companies that go public also have huge growth hurdles they are expected to meet in order to reward their new public shareholders. This past week, I read a a brand new book by Douglas Rushkoff. It just came out called Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, How Growth Became the Enemy of Prosperity. And then in that book, he writes about Twitter, which is one of SACA's most successful investments. Twitter went public in 2013, but it is currently struggling to meet investors' expectations. In fact, Twitter's stock now trades about 25% below its IPO price. Rushkoff comments on Evan's Will, Evan Williams, who is the co- co-founder of Twitter, and Rushkoff knows, knows Evan. And here's his quote. Here's Rushkoff's quote. He talks about, well, how Williams was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal the day after the IPO, and the newspaper had printed the number $4.3 billion under Williams' picture, indicating how much money he had personally made that day of the IPO. And Rushkoff writes, Evan had disrupted journalism with the blog and news gathering with the tweet, but now he was surrendering all that disruption to the biggest baddest industry of them all. When you're on the front page of the Wall Street Journal receiving applause from all those guys in suits, it's not usually because you've done something revolutionary. It's because you help confirm financial capital centrality to the the whole scheme of human affairs. Having taken in this much capital, Twitter now needs to produce. It must grow. In 2015, Twitter investors complained that the company was too far from reaching its 100x growth potential and forced out the CEO. It's not that Twitter isn't successful. It's just not successful enough to justify all the money investors have pumped into it. There was already enough revenue for employees to be happy, the users to be served, and even the original investors to be well compensated in an ongoing way. But there was may never be enough to satisfy shareholders who expect to win back 100 times their initial $20 billion bet. To do that, Twitter must grow into a corporation bigger than the economy of many nations. Isn't that a bit much to ask of an app that sends out messages of 140 characters or less? Rushkoff asked. Rushkoff's book is very provocative because it asks questions of whether growth is really in the DNA of our economic system. Do, can't, do we actually have to have growth? I talked about this in episode 78. What if the economy stopped growing permanently? And I, I went through, well, I gave some examples of Japan and what would have to happen. But, and so then this book came along that addressed a lot of the same concept. And one of the quotes from Rushkoff is, growth may be a requirement of interest-bearing currency and venture capital, but it is not a requirement of business or commerce. What does he mean by that? Well, we talk about venture capitalists need growth in order to, to deliver the returns they're promising to their limited partners. But the capital market ecosystem, which includes stocks and bonds, the investment vehicles, it includes venture capitalists, investment bankers, brokerage firms, and many other stakeholders is founded on growth. It needs growth to survive. When you step back, and what is a stock? A stock is ownership in a company, and the value of that stock is essentially the discounted value, the pre- the present value, the value in today's dollars of all the futures cash flows. So if the stock stops growing, the company stops growing, then the stock essentially becomes close to worthless or, or just certainly won't appreciate over time because it is a stream of future cash flows. The bonds pay interest in order to pay that interest somebody borrows money, they need growth in their company to in order to pay back the debt. But many private businesses, including lifestyle businesses, get along just fine, worrying less about growth and focusing more on serving, helping, and connecting with their customers. And that that was the underlying tension as I listened to that episode with Alex Bloomberg, because he comes across, and I don't know him personally, but he comes across as a guy that that would be quite content with a lifestyle business. And he, he says that this business he has now is bigger than anything he's done in his life, yet he has signed up for the media empire building quest. Here's a quote from Rushkoff. In from his book, we are running an extractive, growth driven economic operating system that has reached the limits of its ability to serve anyone, rich or poor, human or corporate. Moreover, we are running it on supercomputers and digital networks that accelerate and amplify all its effects. Growth is a single, uncontested core command of the digital economy. We are at a crossroads. Every business person, employee, entrepreneur, or creator reading this book understands that we are all operating on borrowed time and borrowed money. We need to make a choice. We can continue to run this growth-driven, extractive, self-defeating program until one corporation is left standing in the impoverished revolt, or we can seize the opportunity to reprogram the economy and our business from the inside out. Now, that's, that's a pretty stunning quote, and, and the book is pretty dense. I mean, it was, it was a well-written book, but I'm going to have to read it again, because there, there's a lot there that, that I really need to think about, because growth is sort of in our DNA, and, and I've talked theoretically about what would happen if, if growth stopped, but he's talking about sort of we're, we're getting toward the end, and, and I'm not quite sure it's that dire, but what I want to do today is focus on the personal. What what would we need to do in our own lives if if growth stopped because I just got recently a friend of mine gave me a subscription to Foreign Affairs magazine. And their March April 2016 edition is The World is Flat Surviving Slow Growth. And one of the articles there harkened back to what I discussed in episode episode seventy eight, on what if if growth stopped, and what if we didn't, or what if the economy stopped growing permanently, permanently, and the the article was "Learning to Love Stagnation: Growth Isn't Everything." Just ask Japan. It was by Zachary Karabell, who is head of global strategy at Investnet. Investnet's a, a trading platform. In fact, when I when I used to manage money, we used to put model portfolios out there on the investment platform that financial planners were able to access. Here's his quote from his article, because he makes the point that life in Japan pretty good, even though they are experiencing stagnation. He says, Economic stagnation, in short, has had little impact on the Japanese public's high quality of life. This realization has led to a wave of new thinking in Japan that emphasizes degrowth or a post-growth model and focuses on well-being rather than income or output. Different focus. A focus on well-being, not income or output. And income and output would be measured traditional measures of, of gross domestic product. Well-being is not a measure of, of GDP. He goes on. The massive success of Marie Kondo's books, and the books he's referring to is the life-changing magic of tidying up, and I've started reading it, and I've and I, I, finished it, I admit, and I read a little bit of time because it's about cleaning up your house and organizing stuff, and I'm not, not real big on organization books, but this, it's, it's good, and it has been a massive success. Zachary goes on to say, so the massive success of Marie Kondo's books on how to pare down one belo- one's belongings to the essentials rather than accumulate more and more stuff in a fruitless attempt to generate happiness encapsulates the emerging Japanese model. And the fact that her book has sold more than 2 million copies worldwide suggests that the message is popular far beyond Japanese shores. Now, as I read some other articles in this edition uh, of Foreign Affairs magazine, it it brought up some of the ush- other themes because the, the title of our episode is Why You Should Start a Lifestyle Business. And one reason I think you should start a lifestyle business, is because we are going to be experiencing slower growth as a world because it comes back to slower labor force growth. And I've given this in, in earlier episodes, just, just, just sort of the baseline. GDP, gross domestic product, is a measure of output, the dollar value of all the goods and services produced. And that, over, t- over the long term, GDP is driven by two factors. It's driven by the growth in the labor force. So if the labor force is growing or growing faster, then, all things being equal, GDP of a country will grow. The other element, in addition to labor force growth, is productivity. How many widgets are those workers able to make? If they're able to make things more quickly, get more efficient, get more productive through using technology or robotics, then that will increase GDP. But there was another article in, in that magazine called The Demographics of Stagnation. It was by Ruchier Sharma. And here's his quote. Between 1960 and 2005, the global labor force grew at an average of 1.8% per year. But since 2005, the rate has downshifted to just 1.1%, and it will likely slip in the coming decades as fertility rates decline in most part of the world labor force in the U.S. is growing at 0.5% per year over the past decade compared with 1.7% from 1960 to 2005. Slower labor force growth rates mean GDP is not going to grow. And that's one reason the recovery since the Great Recession has been much slower than previous recoveries. And with slower economic growth, that means slower corporate profit growth. And that translates into lower returns for stocks and bonds, because stocks, obviously, if they can't grow their profit that fast because the economy isn't growing, then they will not appreciate as fast. And bonds, their return is based on interest rates. And if companies as a whole are not wanting to borrow to invest in new capital projects because they don't think the rewards are as great, then that puts downward pressure on interest rates, and, and obviously the central bank is trying around the world are also trying to, to get companies to invest to borrow, and they've kept interest rates low. But those things are not disconnected. The low expectation for stock returns, the low expectation for bonds returns, are are connected to lower labor force growth rates, which means we as investors are just going to have to save more as I've talked about in the episode on Please Save More. But it also means that we probably should develop some other cash flow that is not associated with this growth-oriented capital markets. And that's where the idea of a lifestyle business comes in. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H dot slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. One of the other books I read recently is called Debt, The First 5,000 Years. It was written by David Graeber. I read the updated and expanded edition. And I've mentioned a number of books in this episode and a number of articles. If you're a member of my Money for the Rest of Us Insider's Guide, you will have gotten links to those show notes and those those particular books and articles. And you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.net. Or you can text the word, if you are based in the U.S., the word insider to the number 44222. In the Insider's Guide, I provide certainly the show notes and links, but also other valuable content, including a summary article of every podcast episode so that you kind of have a summary of much of what I covered. But in this book, Graeber shares a story from Plutarch's book. This is back in early Greek, and and I forgot to look exactly when he lived, I believe, certainly probably 300, 400 B.C., but his book was Theory of Moral Sentiment. And this story is really, really old, but see if it sounds familiar. It says, when the favorite of the king of Aspirius said to his master, or what the favorite of the king Aspirius said to his master may be applied to all men in the ordinary situation of human life. When the king were t- counted to him, to his favorite, in their proper order, all the conquests which he proposed to make, and had come, and when he had come to the last of them, the favorite asked, "And what does your Majesty propose to do then?" In other words, after doing all these conquests and wars that the king was going to pursue, I propose, then," said the king, "to enjoy myself with my friends and endeavour to be good company over a bottle." And what hinders your majesty from doing so now, replied the favorite. David Graeber in his book gives a similar story. This is a story about the missionary and the Samoan, and the missionary sees the Samoan lying on the beach and sees all those coconuts and tells him, why don't you go be, show some initiative and you can build this great company out of these coconuts, and then you can make all this money and retire a rich man. And the missionary asks the Samoan, well, what, what, sh- what would I do then? He said, well, then you can relax and and just rely on the beach. Similar story is the Mexican fisherman and the investment banker. The same moral, the, the fisherman is enjoying life, is enjoying time with his family, but the investment banker says you need to grow a big enterprise so you can retire rich so that he can go back and enjoy fishing and hang out with his family. A lifestyle business allows you to create cash flow so that you're not so dependent on your investment portfolio and it allows you freedom to, do, to, to enjoy yourself, to spend time with your family, to go hang out on the beach, to go fishing. One aspect of that lifestyle business is to reduce our needs. From E.F. Schumacher's small is beautiful. Here's his quote. The cultivation and expansion of needs is the antithesis of wisdom. It is also the antithesis of freedom and peace. Every increase in needs tends to increase one's dependence on outside forces, which one cannot have control, and therefore increases existential fear. Only by reduction in needs can one promote a genuine reduction in those tensions which are the ultimate causes of strife and war, certainly internal strife. And one, be this idea that... that being dependent on outside forces. And when our retirement, our nest egg, is completely dependent on outside forces, on this capital markets ecosystem, on this incessant need for growth in order to support the valuations of stocks, in order to allow to earn a return on bonds. by having a business separate from that, a lifestyle business, a cash flow that is a a way so we're not so dependent on those outside forces. The other way is obviously reduce our needs. I recently got an email from Dave. He spent 13 years in the military and several years on the outside, and he never really thought about investing or retirement until he was 40 and got his first job that offered a 401k. He said, I'm getting along now, but know that I'm nowhere near where I should be by this time. So my question is, is... Essentially, how do I invest for retirement in your 40s or 50s? And the reality is, given low expectations for stock returns, the low expectation for bond returns, you're going to have to save a lot when you're 40 or 50s. But another path is, in addition to saving more and reducing our needs and our wants, we can start a a lifestyle business and and a lifestyle business i mean i have a lifestyle business and i sort of fell into it i i have a podcast i i have a money for the rest of us hub this premium education network where i help individuals with with their asset allocation and provide some model allocations there some additional perspective and insight and education well that that's a lifestyle business that's a part-time business that generates additional cash flow that I don't have to spend time, I don't have to be so dependent on my investment portfolio. Schumacher talks about, well, how how do you go about that? And his book's not about lifestyle business, but he says, he's talking about one of the things to allow for sustainable growth, or what he calls permanence. So this, we can't keep growing forever. At some point, we have to focus on permanence, and sustainability. And that's what a lifestyle business is. A lifestyle business is not trying to, to grow a business so big that you can you can can sell it at the end. The idea is just to generate cash flow and go for permanence. So, so you have enough to meet your needs. So he says we there we need methods and equipment that are cheap enough that they are accessible to virtually everyone, suitable for small-scale applications, and compatible with men's needs for creativity. That describes the world we we are in today. When you look at, for example, what I can do with the hub using technology, there's these cheap tools that are virtually, that anyone can access that's suitable for a small-scale enterprise that allows me to be creative. And so I can leverage the technology, and I'm a one-person shop working part-time, helping out over three or about 300 members on the money for the rest of a hub, and that continues to grow. You can do the same thing. You can find something they are good at, something you enjoy, something where you can be creative and you can use the tools out there to, to build something, a lifestyle-type business. One of my virtual mentors is Chris Brogan. He owns the Owner Media Group. And in his philosophy of business, I really resonate with. He says, it's really four words. It's help serve, communicate, and connect. And that's been the foundation uh, of Money for the Rest of Us and the Money for the Rest of Us hub, just a desire to help people, to serve people, to communicate and connect with people. And and if you go and you can learn more from Chris Brogan and, and learn more about how to do that. A final quote from Douglas Rushkoff, "'Instead of simply digitizing industrial extraction in the name of growing more capital,' Our new media technology can distribute value creation in the name of a sustainable economy. Digital industrialism sought to extract value from the system using new digital means. Digital distribution seeks to use those same technologies to distribute new capabilities to small businesses and real communities. Digital industrialism accepts growth as a condition of nature. Digital distribution strives toward a dynamic, steady state. Think about it. If more and more people start lifestyle businesses, start things small, go for permanent sustainability, a dynamic, steady state, then we're less dependent on these huge corporate megaliths, these huge businesses that seem to be getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And Rushcup's point is at some point there's only going to be one corporation standing. There's only going to be Google left if every company's got to build a bigger and bigger empire. I don't know if it'll be that dire, but certainly with demographics slowing, the labor force growing, just the fact that we have so much stuff already, we have a very slow economic recovery, we, investment returns are going to be low over the next 10 to 20 years, lower than they have been in the past, simply because the economy is growing slower. One solution to that, in terms of our nest egg, is to find a way to develop a lifestyle business. And they start small, and they grow very, very gradually. And that's the idea, is just to learn what you like to do, grow it slow, but be consistent over time so you can just have that side pocket, that additional cash flow so you're not so dependent on your portfolio and to be, do it in a way that you can still take vacation. That's episode 98, show notes at net. I've mentioned the Money for the Rest of Us hub. This is a platform to help you navigate a low-return investment world. How do I help members do that? One, by providing model allocation so they understand what they can earn investing. We look at how you can boost that return above that by using smart beta and by managing risk by adjusting your portfolio allocation based on market conditions, based on valuations, based on economic and central bank trends, and based on market internals, a level of fear and greed, momentum, trend in the market. You can get more information at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I share with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, in the economy. Have a great week.